Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast from the Monash University Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. I'm John Palmer. So to start today, I'm going to read a news story and then Divya Krishnan is going to read a news story. And because I'm a podcasting genius with a real native feel for what is a purely oral medium, my story comes from Life magazine. Now, if you're familiar with Life, you'll realize that it was actually America's leading photojournalism outlet for many years. So much of what I'm going to tell you relies upon photographs that you can't see. But, you know, theater of the mind and all that kind of thing. This is from a 1952 edition of Life. And it's a two-page spread with lots of lovely photographs with the headline, TB Milestone. And the subhead is, two new drugs give real hope of defeating the dread disease. New York's Seaview Hospital was bright last week with the happy faces of men and women, most of whom doctors once thought were certain to die. Victims of tuberculosis, they had been considered hopeless cases. Every treatment had failed. Then Seaview's doctors began feeding them tiny white pills. Miraculously, they began to recover. Within two weeks, most developed ravenous appetites. Some now eat five eggs for breakfast. Then they began to regain weight. A woman who had dropped to 98 pounds regained 89 pounds in 10 weeks. As strength returned, they left their beds to visit, play cards, even to dance. And there's actually a photograph of patients dancing in the TB ward. And then it goes on for a while. It says that over 200 patients have been treated and virtually all are improving. So in terms of photography, we've got the aforementioned picture of the patients dancing in the middle of the ward. We have a photo of row upon row of empty beds as patients have got out of their beds and started to walk around. And we have photographs of patients kind of tucking into massive breakfasts. Marcelid, or Ipronizid, to give it its proper name, actually turned out not to be a terribly good treatment for TB. But for our purposes, that doesn't matter because the real story was in the side effects. See, that Life article found its way into the hands of researchers who saw those pictures of full plates of food and dancing patients and wondered if Marcelid could be used to treat a very different condition, depression. And so, for about five years in the second half of the 1950s, Marcelid became the first commercially available antidepressant. And that Life article is ground zero. It marks the birth of the idea that you could successfully treat depression with drugs. And... One of the reasons that I've chosen to focus on it today is the tone. It's breathlessly optimistic. You could even call it utopian. And now, by way of contrast, Divi is going to read her article. And we're going to kick off with one from 1999, published in the American Anderson Valley Advertiser, titled Drugs, Schools and Killers. It starts, Remember Soma? It was the drug administered to the citizens of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I thought of it as a 15-year-old girl attending a very ritzy liberal arts school in the Northeast told me last week that 80% of the kids in her class were on Prozac or Ritalin, either separately or in combination. The pretext used by the school authorities for the legal prescription of these drugs is either attention deficit disorder or depression. The student is asked three questions along the lines of, do you find yourself daydreaming or looking out the window during school? Say yes, as 100% of all kids around the world throughout all human history would obviously do so if they were truthful, and the kids' parents are urged to give the school a go-ahead to pump in the brew of uppers and antidepressants. Next, we move forward to the early 2000s by an article in Op-Ed News titled School Shootings Drive Antidepressant Use and Are Caused by Them. And they start 
with in the two years after a fatal school shooting, the rate at which antidepressants were prescribed to children and teens rose by 21%. The author, Maya Rosslyn Slater, says that the increasing drug use reflects a genuine deterioration of mental health that is unique to students in or nearby affected schools, but it also reflects a genuine deterioration in our mental health system and its doctors who continue to prescribe SSRI antidepressants to young people despite the black box warning that says may increase suicidal or homicidal thoughts in people aged 25 years or lower. Over six years ago, 26 mass shooters had been found to be on these drugs when they committed their massacres, and the list has only grown since then. While many mass shooters are on psychiatric drugs, like SSRIs, when they commit their murders, others have recently gone off the drugs. Mass shootings have gone up since the antidepressant spree, and reports that the massacres are driving the pills put the cart before the horse. You've read a couple of articles there, Div. Have you got some other headlines that kind of generate this general tenor of, of coverage? Yeah, articles like these have been seen throughout the early 2000s and even as recently as last year. They include, SSRI antidepressants are not medicine. From Prozac to Parkland, are psychiatric drugs causing mass shootings? Antidepressants and violence, cause for concern or media hype? So this is super interesting because what we're talking about in my article is really a very, very primitive, accidentally discovered antidepressant. And now you've had, what, 60, 70 more years of drug development. So we should be getting more refined, more effective, more potent, more selective antidepressants. But in fact, the coverage is completely flipped. So obviously we've chosen these two sets of articles really, really deliberately because we wanted to illustrate the two two of the key narrative strains in the ways that antidepressants have been spoken about over the past sort of half a century. I guess I see them as two poles between which the narrative swings back and forth. And the natural human temptation here is to just kind of throw your hands up in despair and assume that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And there's actually a name for this. It's a logical fallacy called the argument to moderation, also known as false equivalence, false compromise, argument from the middle ground, etc., etc. And what we wanted to do is to jump right into the middle of that fallacy and dedicate today's episode to passing the middle ground, to exploring it and trying to inject a little bit of nuance into that discussion. So we're going to look at the most popular class of antidepressants, which is the ones that are detailed in, uh, in Div's articles, SSRIs, and try to get a sense of exactly what that middle ground looks like. What are SSRIs good at? What are they less good at? What are the limitations? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And how do they fit more generally into the treatment of depression? Sound good, Div? Sounds great. We thought the right way to start was to try and get an understanding of what's going on here at a physical level. So, not so much what's going on in the mind of a depressed person as what's going on in their brain, if that's a distinction we can make. What's the biology here? And then, how do SSRIs affect that biology? What changes are they making in your brain? And why do those changes, all going well, alleviate your depression? To try and answer these questions, Divya spoke to Chris Langmead. Chris is a laboratory head here at the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. He's also spent a fair chunk of his career in the private sector, so he gets what goes on in trying to get a new drug to market. Just to manage your expectations, he has no simple answers for us. But if you're anything like me, you'll find him quite reassuring anyway because his accent is so unspeakably posh. So I suppose we'll start very bare bones basics. What really causes depression? The reality is that we still don't know that 
deep biological mechanisms by which people become depressed and that's something that we really need to address. Is that part of the reason it's so difficult to treat? I mean, there are a number of reasons at the social level, um, you know, just getting people to go to their GP if they're feeling that they are might be depressed or have those symptoms. That's a, a social issue that we need to address. But even when we actually get people to seek medical help, it's difficult because we simply don't understand all of the mechanisms that are in play when uh, someone becomes depressed. So it's hard to to pin down. I mean, we may be looking at multiple different disorders or diseases with different biological basis but if you know if we're looking at across the whole population it's difficult to know exactly how we're going to treat all of those people because we're essentially assessing them based on the symptoms that they present with not the underlying biology what we're really interested in today is ssris and Mm. if you could sort of break that down for me as well how do they work Okay, so, well, SSRI, people probably have heard of that term, but they might not even know what it stands for. So SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. And there's a chemical in the brain called serotonin, or also known as 5-HT, which is released from, from nerves. And when its actions are, are over in the brain, it's actually taken back up into the nerves by a transporter. And SSRI is essentially block that process so they boost the levels of serotonin in the system and the idea is that in depressed patients we believe those levels are too low and by boosting them we can actually get them back up into a normal range and that's what actually brings some of the mood enhancing benefits that you get from SSRIs. It seems like it's really changed the game or changed the landscape of how we view treatment for mental health disorders. Well I mean one of the reasons they are the sort of gold standard at the moment, is that, you know, if we look at the big picture in the history of mental illness, is that they are very effective. Some of these drugs, SSRIs, have been able to restore um, some of those patients to a much more sort of normal life and enable them to live in a way that they weren't able to before. And we mustn't, we mustn't forget that. If you look across the whole uh, sort of broad history as well, you know, we haven't actually come up with anything groundbreaking in the treatment of depression in you know in over 20 years and during that time we've treated a lot of patients very effectively but we've also come to understand that SSRIs have their limitations they have their side effects they have problems that are associated with them and it's really incumbent on us to think about well, what is that next breakthrough what is that next generation of treatment that we can make available to patients in the future. There's been many reports on overprescription of antidepressants, particularly SSRIs. I think we've seen a lot of sort of glaring news-grabbing headlines like overprescription on the rise, more mm. than X number of people. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think that's true? Well, you have to look at it at a number of levels. We know that the number of people who are reporting to suffer from mental health issues has been on the rise as well. So. Clearly, if there is going to be medication prescriptions associated with that, they're going to rise, you know, at at the same time. The question is, is whether they're rising over and above the level of reported mental health uh, cases. I think partly they're a victim of their own success, the SSRIs, I mean. Um, They are effective treatment for a lot of patients, so it's actually relatively easy for a, a patient to go to a GP and ask for them. It's important to note that there are some side effects that are very rare and they're so rare that actually they largely wouldn't be detected when a drug is being developed in clinical trials. And it's only once that drug is marketed 
to the population at large that that evidence might come to light, which is why it's important for drug companies to continue to monitor and be vigilant about what their drugs are doing, even in a post-marketing world, and to continually engage with the FDA or other regulatory bodies to ensure that that data is, is maintained and up-to-date so that the guidelines can be changed if necessary. You could make the argument, oh, well, you should look at your drug in you know 100,000 patients instead of 10,000 patients. But the counter-argument to that is, well, um, you're actually then potentially denying the sort of 90% of patients who are absolutely fine the, the opportunity to benefit from the treatment that they might get. It's a really challenging area and there are no simple answers. So we know that drugs that you take that change what is happening in your brain can have effects, they can change your state of mind, they can have severe side effects, there is no doubt about that, you know, it can happen. The question is, is whether these drugs on that occasion were directly responsible for, you know, actions that were, um, that happened. And it's very difficult to say, because largely, you're already dealing with patients that have often quite severe mental health issues in the first place. So it's very difficult to really tease out and understand, well, is this just the patient or is this a, a drug-induced effect? One of the mantras you hear quite a lot around here is that medicines don't work in people who don't take them. Now, that's obviously true in a literal sense, but it also works as kind of a synecdoche. It points to a wider issue around medicine use. Something can work in a tolerably predictable way in a lab setting, but once you get out there in real patients in a real community, all sorts of other factors come into play. There's also the issue of how SSRIs fit in the broader range of treatments for depression, what their strengths, weaknesses and dangers are, and how they compare to other alternatives. To get a sense of that broader context, Amy Chen spoke with Dan Malone. Dan is the Deputy Director of the Pharmacy course here at the Faculty, and like quite a few of our academics, he also keeps his hand in as a practicing community pharmacist. So he's in a great position to share some insights around how SSRIs actually work out there in the real world. Is this the only class of antidepressant on the market right now? No, look, there's a number of agents. Uh, so according to the therapeutic guidelines, there's three agents that are, or three classes of medicines that are a first-line treatment for depressive disorders. So there's SSRIs, there's another class called SNRIs, which stands for serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors, and there's another medicine called metazapine, which is quite a commonly prescribed antidepressant as well. Uh, and there's approximately, I think, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, there is um, about 1.7 million people who had been on at least one um, PBS subsidised prescription for antidepressants uh, in 2011. So what are the differences between these classes of antidepressants and why are SSRIs the most prescribed? Yeah, look, they differ in terms of their mechanism of action and therefore in terms of their, their effect. This, as I said, it's not exactly known how any of the antidepressants work. We do know that they're, they're clinically effective, but exactly how they work we don't know. The SSRIs tend to be a doctor's first choice for most types of depression because they're generally well tolerated by people. They're generally non-sedating, so they don't make people drowsy. Uh, most people tolerate them quite well. They um, 
are quite commonly known, I guess, and doctors know quite a bit about them, and so they're able to prescribe them with a lot of confidence. There's a lot of theories around about why depression occurs and why particular antidepressants might be good for particular people. One theory suggests that if a person has more fear and guilt and anxiety, that SSRIs might be better for them than some other antidepressants. There's other theories that suggest that some antidepressants like um, SNRIs might be better if someone just has a real lack of drive or um, doesn't find things pleasurable anymore. When SSRIs came into the market in the 1980s, it was heralded as the miracle drug. Um, Why was that the case? So at the time, there was a number of antidepressants that were on the market and many of them still are. The mainstay of treatment were ones called tricyclic antidepressants and they, whilst they are quite good in terms of treating symptoms of depression, the major drawback or one of the major drawbacks is their side effects that exist as well as the fact that they are potentially fatal in overdose. And therefore, when SSRIs came along, they were, as you said, heralded as being a real game changer for the treatment of depressive states because of the fact that they were quite well tolerated that they were generally um, not, they don't cause drowsiness like the tricyclics can, and they worked. They worked quite well for not everyone, but a substantial proportion of people that took them certainly um, had relief of their depressive symptoms or, or improvement, at least, in their depressive symptoms. Were there any differences in the side effects for SSRIs compared to the other classes? Sure. Look, there's... Like with any medicine on the market, if you look at the potential side effects that could occur, there's many with many drugs, and SSRIs are are no different from that. So some common side effects with SSRIs include nausea. Uh, Sometimes people can get a bit of diarrhoea. Sometimes they can cause insomnia and some sexual dysfunction in some people. But these are side effects which, generally speaking, don't occur in a lot of the proportion of people that take them and they are, as I said, more better tolerated than than your older medicines such as your tricyclic antidepressants. So tricyclic antidepressants have their own spectrum of side effects including drowsiness, dry mouth, blurred vision, constipation. They can um, also cause nausea and um, they are, as I said, um, potentially lethal in an overdose, which is obviously if someone has suicidal thoughts as part of their depressive symptoms, then that's something you certainly don't want a person to, um, or or a a trait of a medicine that you don't want that to have. Is drug adherence a big problem for people living with depression? Look, it is, Amy. Uh, About 68% of people diagnosed with depression stop their antidepressants by three months, which is pretty high. Uh, and uh, while a lot of those patients might continue to take their medications, uh, a lot don't take them as consistently as they're supposed to. So adherence is a major issue. The reason why adherence is an issue, well, there's various reasons and it would depend on the person. One, as you alluded to, might very well be side effects that a person is experiencing. But there was a study that came out from a group in Toledo in the States that suggested that that's not the only reason why people might not be adherent to their medicines. Interestingly, their relationship with the physician is really important. So 
people that are less satisfied with their physicians are more likely to go off their medicine, which I think is really interesting. Uh, younger patients are more likely to go off their medicines. Um, so, and also, I guess, the, in terms of the stages of change model, we know that there's various stages in terms of people accepting their condition and wanting, wanting to improve. So being in the right stage of change, that is in terms of being prepared and ready to act, is important. So what that tells us, if, if, if people are diagnosed with a depressive disorder and then are prescribed an antidepressant but aren't ready themselves to, to change and to, um, even to in some instances, admit that they have a, a condition, then that can be a real impediment in terms of them taking their medication. In terms of drug adherence, um, a lot you said that a lot of people drop out in the first three months. Could that also be due to the way the antidepressants work? Because I heard that some of them takes a couple of weeks before yeah. an effect is seen. That's very true, Amy. So all antidepressants on the market essentially uh, take at least a week and more likely three to four weeks to have any significant effect. And when a person first starts taking an antidepressant, it might actually take months uh, to get the right dose level uh, for a person uh, to be able to treat their depression. So you're absolutely right that in that first sort of period of time, a person might start taking their medicine and just have um, no benefit or, or feel like they're not just not getting any better when they're taking the medicine. That can be a major reason why a person does stop taking their medicine and that's something that any pharmacist should do or and a doctor for that matter as well in terms of when a person's first started taking an antidepressant that they're told that they won't see an effect right away that it is important to keep taking the medication even though they're not seeing an effect so that hopefully within a few weeks they will see a therapeutic effect. I mentioned at the outset of this episode that the popular narrative around antidepressants has swung between two poles, sort of a, a giddily utopian story on one hand and a darkly apocalyptic one on the other. And part of what we're doing here is trying to map that middle ground to, to inject a bit of nuance into that debate. So it helps to know that the evolution of the research, just like the evolution of the popular narrative, can also be characterised as a dialogue between two competing camps, although they're slightly different in nature. You could broadly characterise those two camps as the biological and the psychological. One group of researchers who favour explanations and therapies based in the biology and chemistry of the brain, another who favour explanations and therapies relating to the mind. The words commonly used to describe these two camps are the brainless and the mindless. And it's probably fair to say that so far in this episode, we've erred on the side of mindlessness. That is to say, we've neglected the psychological aspects. And look, that's probably a function of the fact that we are a faculty of pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences, so that's the lens we tend to view things through. But we wanted to check our working, to reach out to someone who also had a foot in the psychological camp and get their take on things. That's particularly as regards the distinction between depression that originates within the brain and something that looks like depression, but is actually more of a direct response to external circumstances. Jayshree Kulkarni is attached to the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Science here at Monash. She's a professor of psychiatry at the Alfred Hospital, and she founded and directs a large psychiatric research group there, the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. Divya spoke with her. The diagnoses 
or diagnosis of depression is really complicated, as I said before, and there are many conditions that are considered to be depressive, but they're actually got different um, etiologies. So, for example, the, um, the young woman who's got a new baby and who's got a toddler um, and who's sleep-deprived will feel down um, and tearful and, you know, all of these things can happen. Now, that could look like somebody who's depressed because she's tearful, her mood is not good, her energy levels are low, um, and she's not enjoying herself. So, again, there's a case to be made for diagnosis of depression. But what's really happening there is maybe a situational problem. So, you know, again, if you have the luxury of an extended consultation, you might be able to work through some of that scenario with her about, okay, we'll try and get some night relief for you. Can you get, you know, somebody else to do the night feed for a, for a couple of nights, have a sleep and then see where you're up to. So, again, the difficulty there is that if you don't have time to take the story and try this, then a diagnosis of depression and a resulting prescription for an SSRI may happen. So it goes back to the diagnosis, which is often very difficult for a very busy primary healthcare practitioner to do, because it takes at least, look, a good hour to actually sit down and talk with the person about their individual coping mechanisms, how have they dealt with stresses in the past, what is in their environment at this point in time? What are the recent factors of loss or grief or whatever else is going on? And what's the biology? So, you know, what is going on in terms of their physical health? Because it interacts enormously. What's going on in terms of their healthy lifestyle? Are they eating well? You know, the brain needs to be fueled by good food. And uh, we've had lots of people come into the clinic who say things like, you know, I've gained weight and so I've gone on this, this diet and you look at what they're eating and it's kind of one lettuce leaf every now and again. And of course, this person feels miserable. And so the nutritional balance is important as well. Sleeping is important. Um, those sorts of uh, really critical biological factors, diurnal variation, so people going on and off night shifts for whatever their job requires, can also um, have dreadful depression related to diurnal variation being disturbed. Adolescents who are up all night on their screens, um, again, you know, sleep deprivation is a potent depressogenic agent. So we come back to it. Not everything can be protocolized and treated with an SSRI. Having said that, there is, of course, a place for SSRIs. Once a clear diagnosis of depression has been made as a primary illness, that is not particularly related to a number of the other factors going wrong. And um, then, of course, it's about, right, what's the right antidepressant? One of the other things that's really critical is to match the type of SSRI with the particular symptoms that the individual presents with. So, for example, some SSRIs are activating SSRIs, like fluoxetine, the original Prozac, it's a very agitating or activating antidepressant. So the patient who's presenting with agitated depression, the sort of depression where they can't sit still, they've got problems sleeping, um, they're up pacing, they're wringing their hands, that's not the person you want on an activating uh, antidepressant like fluoxetine. Other um, antidepressants like sertraline, for example, has a profile that is a bit better for anxiety and panic, which can be a subset of the depressive symptoms. 
So if you have a patient with that particular subset, then you're better off treating with sertraline. Um, sometimes you want to be able to use a shorter-acting SSRI if it is something like PMDD or premenstrual depression where you maybe want to just use it for one week to 10 days of every cycle. And again, you can't then have a long-acting antidepressant, otherwise um, the SSRI will cause the withdrawal. Um, the patient will have the withdrawal symptoms and that can be difficult. So we have to match the SSRI with the particular symptom that the patient presents with, as well as understanding that the correct dose is absolutely critical. And in this instance, we use a lot of pharmacogenomic testing um, to try to understand the individual metabolism systems, then match the right antidepressant with that particular metabolism system in the right dose range. Because most doses uh, prescribed you know, if you look up the prescription guidelines, they have a dose range. But if you get it wrong, overshooting the therapeutic window is just as bad as undershooting the therapeutic window. So you end up with an ineffective treatment and that's no good for the patient. Um, the right type of medication is critical for the drug metabolism systems because sometimes uh, individuals who've been treated with a particular antidepressant, we do a pharmacogenomic test and we find out that in fact the one they're on doesn't suit their metabolism system, so it's actually completely ineffective. So there's several things to consider when we think about depression and SSRIs. We need to think about correct diagnosis as much as we can, given the limitations of not having biomarkers or a particular test. But certainly a long diagnostic process is better than a short one. Then choosing the right treatment, which may not be an immediate antidepressant, but there are many other modalities, including proper psychotherapy, looking for hormonal issues, looking for developmental issues. So in a child, for example, um, who's been in the middle of a war-torn situation, you need to deal with that. Um, and that may not be best done by an SSRI. So while I agree that SSRIs have got their place, they've been a really good advent and they're much better than the older antidepressant tricyclics and much less dangerous than the Mayo inhibitors, we need to be careful because there is a withdrawal problem with SSRIs. The symptoms are quite terrible. Um, there are adverse effects on the SSRIs. Weight gain in some instances is a big issue for some patients, so we need to be careful of that. And also toxicity, so serotonin syndrome is another part of SSRI poor prescription. But match the symptoms match the drug metabolism systems to get the right use of the SSRI in the right patient at the right time. Thanks to Dan Malone, Jayshree Kulkarni and Chris Langmead for appearing on this episode. Interviews conducted by Divya Krishnan and Amy Chen and this episode was produced by Caleb Linda and Dave Rogers. Music by Dave Rogers and by me but mostly by Dave Rogers because he's much better at it. A lot of the background for this episode came from a book called Mind Fixes, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness by Anne Harrington, which I thoroughly recommend. The song under our outro is called A Sisyphean Grail. It's by local Melbourne artist Georgia Fields off her album Astral Debris. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. <laughs>